Dyslexia to me is something that frees my mind, essentially. It's not an inhibitor, it's actually an enabler and it enables creativity. And what I have realized is that it makes my work unique. It's not talent, it's actually my dyslexia. You know, I remember saying that I want to make the first dance in Antarctica and thinking that was totally 100% normal. I had completely rationalized it in my mind. And I remember telling some other people, and they're like, that's absolutely crazy, it makes absolutely no sense. But in my mind, it was completely normal and a really logical next step for me. Attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Modeled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia. It will not hold you back. Dyslexic. It's kind of your super Anything is dyslexic. Dyslexia. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Move Beyond Words podcast, funded by Arts Council England and hosted by us, the founders of Move Beyond Words. I'm Elizabeth Arifian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. It took us a little while to get here, but we're pleased to be back. We are dance artists and usually turn to movement as our way of communicating an idea. But when the pandemic hit, we wanted to continue important conversations surrounding dyslexia. In this series, we continue our exploration of dyslexia in all its fascinating, divergent and quite often misunderstood forms. Each week, we invite guests to talk, listen and share the challenges of navigating dyslexia while we delve into the experiences that made them who they are today. Expect authentic, off-the-cuff stories to connect with and learn from as we celebrate the ways in which the guests move beyond words through interpretive dance. A joke. We do this ironically through words, which is a challenge in itself for two dyslexics. So here we go. Hi, Corey. Hello. Welcome to our podcast, Move Beyond Words. And it's really nice to just meet you in the flesh because we obviously did the webinar with the space, but virtually. So yeah, it's great to have you in our little hub. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. To ease our listeners in, I think it'd be great to just rewind the clock and just hone in on the core of your work. So we know that that's surrounding dance, but it'd be great to hear like what initially inspired you to dance. So I come from Christchurch, New Zealand, originally. I grew up with uh, my mum as a single parent sort of family. And we didn't really have any money and therefore we couldn't go to, you know, the fancy opera houses or plays or, or galleries or anything like that. So my arts uh, introduction was the free stuff going on in parks and, and festivals and things like that. And I really remember going, I think around the age of seven to a playground or a, a big park in Christchurch called Hagley. And I went to see a show called Simbad, and it was made on containers. And my mom took me. I remember falling absolutely in love with this world that they had created and just bless my mom, she took me back every single night. And by the, I was quite a tenacious child. And by the end of the week run, I had made friends with the security guard and the security guard offered to take me backstage when it was all closing down. And I remember still to this day going behind the scenes of this what, what seemed to me like uh, the most magical world ever and seeing all the ropes and pulleys mm. and the trap doors and where the props oh, and all so the costumes exciting. it was so exciting yeah. like I can feel the the magic just of being there now and that's what got me hooked I think as an idea of theater mm. magic creativity 
that eventually sort of found uh, me, you know, trying to recreate that by going to drama classes and and taking, um, you know, I think also, you know, I had ADHD, so my mum was really eager to try and get rid of me as much as possible. That's so not fair to my mum, but <laughs> that's not true at all. But you know, sort keep of expand exactly, yeah. keep me active, keep me engaged, and drama was a really great way of doing that. Which then rolled on to doing musicals, which rolled on to tap dancing, having to learn how to tap dance, which I loved so much. And then I was at high school. Um, and as you can imagine, I was really cool um, being, you know, practicing tap dancing all the time um, <laughs> during lunch times and stuff, like super popular kid. Everyone's best friend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In case you can't see my face, which you can't because you're listening, I'm pulling an ironic <laughs> face. So I'm, I, I was not cool at all. Uh, my English teacher, however, at um, high school also ran a ballet school outside of being an English teacher. And so she clocked me, probably took pity on me a little bit, and uh, said, look, if you come and do ballet classes with me outside of school, I'll pass you in English. And I said... That is a very, very good deal, considering <laughs> I always struggled with English. Yeah, I then passed English, actually, and uh, started ballet and was in full-time training to be a ballet dancer. And the rest is, well, I guess my history. I can see, obviously, that innovation and, as everyone always says with dyslexia, thinking outside the box. And you can see that that is clearly in your work now. So what are you currently working on that has kind of come from those moments of going out and seeing art in playgrounds and in those mm. different spaces? I actually remember the performance. It was with Mark Brew in the Greenwich and Docklands Festival. And it was a performance outside, oddly enough, this New Zealand statue that was there. And I thought that was quite serendipitous. And we went there and did this show. And I just remember feeling this sort of full circle moment where I was performing outside and, and there was this group of normal everyday people around watching and I was interacting with them, seeing them, feeling them. And I it sort of took the elitism away from it. Mm. And it clearly I as a person and you know, I come from a specific type of background that I guess I always found it tricky being in those opera houses in a ballet company and, you know, going to those types of dinners. It just didn't really gel with me. But all greater than that, it was about the connecting of art and the connecting of people to story and characters and magic actually which is exactly what i had when i was seven and now i was redoing it and i think that was in the hook as a professional artist and then i've carried on doing that um or at least now knowingly but for a while not knowingly i was just interested in that feeling i guess and i was trying to recreate that possibly just trying to recreate my seven-year-old self essentially yeah <laughs> yeah so possibly to need essence. to go to therapy for i don't know but you know <laughs> no, one of the no. keep playing keep playing i, I think that's the key when i left my mom in christchurch to go to ballet school in australia when i was 15 i've never seen my mom cry like oh, that man. and i've never been so upset and it was this weird taboo of, of going on the plane and i was just the most excited I'd ever been in my life and so determined to make this work and knew what I was doing, profoundly leaving my family. And, you know, I had just enough money in the account to m make it through that year for rent and food. That was all of, of training. So I had no idea what was going to happen after that. And so I, there was that sort of like determination to make mm. it work, but also the realization of 
the sacrifice that had just happened. And I think those two things, the excitement and the, dare I say, sacrifice, I guess, yeah, is, is, was a consistent driving force. Even today, I'm, you know, I still feel like I've got to make sure that that 15-year-old kid did the right choice in a way. And that's heavy. Like, I, I see myself in what you're saying there because when I left home, I was 18, but I got on the train with minus 650 to go in my bank account and I was heading to London and I was living in a hostel and I was yeah. just like so determined that yeah. I was going to make this work and like nothing would get in my way, you know, really, really ambitious. And I really see that as a reflection of, you know, some of the negatives that I had to go through in school, like sticking out of the crowd because, you know, I had to go to like the headmaster's office to do a lot of my work because the teacher couldn't teach me and the rest of the class. Mm. So there was a lot of kind of isolation. And and so, yeah, you kind of begin this dialogue about yourself of not good enough. That was my dialogue. I'm yeah. not good enough. So it was always like, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove to people that I am. And doing those things outside of the norm I don't know what happens. I'm not ever going to pretend that I'm a you know neurological scientist or a dyslexic master at all. But I do. You're right in identifying that most creative people, a there is completely a connection to that dyslexia and the freedom of one's mind, and how that I think segregation of an academic career right. yeah. or the norm forces you to go right. I'm going to grab this and I'm going to make this work. There's a book by um, Matthew Todd called The Straitjacket. There's a theory as to why there's a lot of successful homosexuals, right. uh, myself being one of them. You know, we have this idea that, oh, I might be a gay, but, you know, I'm going to have a house as well and I'm going to be have a job and mm. I'm going to prove to mum and dad that I can be successful. And I think it's also the same theory for having dyslexia and or being creative. I actually don't even want to, you know, I think it's a wider thought that when you feel not normal, quote unquote, you've got uh, that as a spark to, to do it. The flip side of that can be you're not living up to the standard. And I think with people with dyslexia, we are often shown like Richard Branson and mm. like 40% of self-made millionaires are dyslexic. <laughs> you know, all these different facts and quotes that we're fed kind of set this precedent of like, you can do that too. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to. And I think there's a conversation around that that isn't had enough. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be successful. You can just be a great human yeah, yeah, yeah. and live your life with dyslexia. And I, I feel there's becomes like this elitist conversation around success and also class. Like I feel there's a big conversation around that as well. Yeah, you're so right. And the embarrassingness of it and being like, embarrassingness? Is that a word? I don't know, it but I love it. Now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dyslexic <laughs> word. I think it's trending. Go. Um, embarrassingness um, of the association of dyslexia is still very much there. And like, I feel it. And I go, you know, I don't want to um, talk about it really, actually. And I don't want to use it as an excuse. But ultimately, it's a real thing and it's really there. I think that's in my, that's thing I need to work on still and get over. And it's definitely a fire that I'm like, no, I'm not going to let it dictate me. But actually, in some ways, I feel like what you're saying is like, there is the, there's another version of that where it is like actually just 
you know, you don't have to prove anything at all. That is who you are. And it's also like all the incredible things that you've done that is also dyslexia. Mm. So seeing it not only as the things that it stops you doing, but also recognizing actually your dyslexia has enabled you to see in that way. 100%. So I also have ADHD. So I think the combination of those two things is um, like drinking five Red Bulls at any minute. Dyslexia to me is something that frees my mind essentially it's not an inhibitor it's actually an enabler and it enables creativity and what i have realized is that it makes my work unique it's not me or uh you know it's not talent it's actually my dyslexia i don't think you know i remember saying to um my producer, I want to make the first dance in Antarctica and thinking that was totally 100% normal. I had completely rationalized it in my mind. And I, and I remember telling her and some other people, and they're like, that's absolutely crazy. It makes absolutely no sense. But in my mind, it was completely normal and a really logical next step for me. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just makes sense, you know. That, really. is, that, is, that is how so I found good. out about your work, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The space, the skies just made this work in Antarctica. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who is he? <laughs> he must have dyslexia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then obviously, yeah. like, like then kind of getting to know the rest of your work and then hearing about the history of how you know, you started getting inspired by those site-specific spaces. This, mm. I mean, it, it's just amazing. And the fact that coming back to that challenge about always pushing yourself, it feels like that is your way of going, mm. what next? Where mm. next? Mm -hmm. Where can I push this? Mm. And what's more bonkers? What's more, what's, <laughs> just, what's people, what are people not doing? And I guess actually, I don't even think like that. Actually, it's what happens. Yeah. And then what, and I just won't be stimulated by an idea. So there's nothing, there's not one I of me that wants to create a nutcracker in a, in a theater. There's just absolutely not one part of my body that wants to do it because it, it's been done before. It would be too easy for my mind. My mind needs to be completely stimulated and challenged in order for those creative thoughts to flow. And I do think that's dyslexia. I think that's a beautiful way of pushing the medium as well and the art form because mm. for, you know, centuries, Centuries? Is that the right thing? Is it decades? Yeah, you know, centuries? I can't do history. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's always been in those houses. Yeah. And it comes back to that class. It comes back to about the fact that, um, you know, it's it's only been accessible to certain people. Yep. And yet the beauty of your work is that you're able to reach so many different people through digital works and just also making it feel more relevant by mm. just opening up the spaces. Well, I would love to hear what is going on now. Mm. What are you what are you up to? Oh, well, see, here's the thing. So in January 2020, I was making a work for Birmingham Ballet and Hong Kong Ballet. And I was doing the Birmingham part. And then I got on a plane from Birmingham to Hong Kong. And as I landed in Hong oh Kong, they closed Hong Kong airport. Oh no. Yeah. Will you turn back? No, they kept me there. Or well, did you do a performance in the airport? <laughs> do you know what? I definitely did do a performance at the airport to the security <laughs> oh, guards. Really? Yeah, because they lost my bag. When COVID hit, a lot of my work got cancelled and um, or postponed. And I, I had a really busy year planned with lots of commissions back to back. And essentially, they all got derailed and um so i went on to like when i eventually came back to the uk i was in my house doing nothing and so 
about to go insane. And my poor flatmates, I was like climbing up the walls, doing everything, needing a creative outlet. Um, so I managed to create a, a film called Swan Lake Bath Ballet, um, which had 27 dancers in, in bathtubs around the world. It was insane. It was amazing. Incredible, Corey. And if you have not seen that, listeners, you have to go and check that out. Is it on BBC iPlayer still? Yes, it is still on the iPlayer. It's on YouTube and it's on um, our and I think a lot of people's social medias now. It's had 10 million views. I love when you're promoting your work, you've gone all really quiet. <laughs> I'm shy. <laughs> ten, 10 million. 10, 10 million views. Incredible. Uh, that is absolutely incredible. Thank you. Yeah. The reason why I brought that on is that it made me realise that actually I can create anything, anywhere, anytime, because I'd never done that before. I literally sat on my toilet seat for two months um, and like legit, I'd put a cushion on my toilet seat and I sat there in my bathroom and choreographed and made that film for two wow. months. Yeah, it was the hardest film I've ever made, actually. Much harder than going to Antarctica or whatever. Why is that? Because of the separation of everyone, like coordinating that. everything? No, the coordination, yeah, really challenging. No one had really done that. We certainly had and, and how we film in people's... Um, houses through their phones and and rehearsing and keeping 27 people in time when you're you know it was just it was really complicated and time zones and all of that um but the hardest part for me and and what was a huge realization from that and i'm it was how much of your creative process is dependent on the nuances of people and like the energy of people in a room and of you know when you have a you know we've done it already when Mm. someone has a has a low moment, not a low moment, but, you know, steps back, someone's there to pick up the the silence or pick mm. in, you know, give a bit of energy to that space. When you're on a Zoom all day, there's like none of that. And you're just like, it's very giving. Yeah. Uh, and there's no receiving and there's no table tennis of collaboration, which I didn't realize was so much a part of the process. I just really miss people. So we found ourselves, and I'm finding myself right now, in a very sort of um, crazy time where it's like everything that was supposed to happen over the last 18 months is happening in a week. And um, it's definitely a result of COVID, but mm. um, it's quite an exciting time and I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm here for it. So we've done, um, what we're doing, I, I'm choreographing um, the Commonwealth Games at the moment, which is next year in Birmingham. Yes. Wow. So oh my gosh. Your faces were amazing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that is um, exciting. What, what? How do you prepare for such a big event? Drink a lot of coffee yeah. and sort of smile a lot. As well, in addition stuff. to the five Red Bulls. Yes, no. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In addition. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite hectic. I mean, I've never done a stadium show before, so I'm definitely learning on the job, but we've got an amazing team. There's 1,800 performers. It's a three-hour show. One billion people are going to watch it. I get to um, There's... What? Oh, I don't think I'm allowed to say that. I'm so sorry. I'm actually, I know I'm not allowed to say that. It's, it's absolutely insane. The schedule's insane. The creative's insane. The, um, it's it's going to be one heck of a show. I got a couple of questions on that one. <laughs> <laughs> on big scale works like this, yeah. do you feel like it's relevant to mention your dyslexia? Oh, do you know what? I'm so glad you asked that question because this something happened on this, John, that's never happened before. And I don't really have a, there's no antidote to this. I'm just going to tell you what happened and I would love to know how you feel about it. So normally I don't tell people and I have a manager and my manager told um, the head producers, my associate producer on the Commonwealth, 
that I have dyslexia and ADHD, just as a sort of, you know, information without me knowing. And then I went to a meeting um, on, about something and uh, they were saying, Corey, you know, you've got all of this uh, work that will be piled on your desk by the end of the day. So if you could get through it by the end of the week. And then um, a producer said, oh, just so you know, Corey has ADHD and dyslexia and just sort of said that on my behalf. And I, I was like, what? How do you know that? And they said, your manager reached out and told us. And I just, it was just, it just blindsided me. And I guess it's it's the normal thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I don't know. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting conversation because I think everyone is different, right? And I think, you know, it doesn't work for everyone to be spoken on behalf of. But I think something that I have found really helpful is just having a conversation with people ahead of going into a new collaboration and saying, you know, I would prefer to say it. You know, this is how I work. This works for me. This doesn't work for me. I think it takes such a long time to work out what your strengths and weaknesses are. But when you do, like, so much opens up. And yeah, I think it is really important to identify them personally. It's a lot easier when you don't have easier. many strengths. <laughs> You've only got a couple, then it's really easy to identify. <laughs> it's a long list of weaknesses. <laughs> Yeah, but look, the strengths that you've got are sending you to space. We can't put that on for copyright rules. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, so in addition to Commonwealth Games, we've been doing a lot of film work at the moment. And one of the films that we are all making um, is the first Dance in Space. So, yes, we are working with the European Space Agency. And next week, this time next week, in fact, and on Wednesday next week, I'll be in Bordeaux doing my pre-flight training day as my body having a visceral reaction to the, <laughs> the <laughs> absurdity of, of what's going to happen to my body next week. And then on Thursday, I spend the day in zero gravity in a, a plane that goes very, very, very high, far too high for my liking, and then um, drops, and for 30 seconds, well, I will experience zero gravity. The, the whole thing about this project is around the overview effect, which is the epiphany astronauts feel when they go to space. Um, there's obviously not very many people who have experienced this, um, but they look down at our planet, and essentially, they feel a sense of one people, one, like we're all a family, one race and we've got one planet and one home and a lot of astronauts have to um have quite a lot of therapy after it and and it changes their lives and their mindset <clears throat> i think we get a little bit of it when we go on a plane and we sort of feel this sort of godlike complex or reflective or nostalgic of either where we're going or are leaving and it's similar to that but massively more heightened I imagine mm. so I think the world's in a very lovely place to be inspired by this feeling and that's what this project's about we have a word in New Zealand a Māori word called whānau and it means family and we say it to everyone so everyone is our family in New Zealand because we are all related we are all family technically right mm -hmm. we all come from we're all our DNA is all very connected but in a world that's so divided by land and race and religion and sexuality and God, you know, everything. I feel like this feeling is so important. So the dance film, the documentaries that we're making is essentially to look for that feeling and create it in the work that we do. 
And how we're doing that is I'm training to be professional. (laughs) (laughs) Casual. That is really cool. I love how a dance can be like a tool. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's totally like, it's very rewarding for me and for the collaborators. But I guess what it comes from is this sort of genuine looking at stripping it away from the establishments it's attached to and the elitism it's been defined by and going, we all dance and we all move. And, you know, I kind of hate saying this, but it is very real. Dance is an international language, right? It can connect people anywhere in the world. And we say that as 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 a saying too much, but and we lose the realness in it. And, and the realness is, is that, you, you know, we dance with everyone and like with body language that we get, we connect with people first via what we see and via movement before we speak, you know. And, and I think if you can harness that, then you can really access big topics and big emotive feelings and, and not in a pretentious way, but in a very real way. I'm, I don't know how to do it yet, but I'm still, I'm trying to crack it. And I feel like the environments that you put it in help uh, connect a vaster amount of people as opposed to, you know, the rich elite. It's a really interesting point. And I don't know if you know this, but people with dyslexia actually have higher empathy levels. Yeah. And I think everything that you're talking about there is about connection and bringing people together. And I can see that that is a real strength of yours is to think beyond yourself and think bigger than yourself so that the work that you create has a power to change. But given all of these situations that you've kind of been in, first dance in Antarctica, going to space, you know, leaving home so young, like I imagine that there are times where dyslexia has shown up in the most unexpected ways. When I was 16, I was living in Australia and the ballet company do this amazing thing where they take 10 students on a tour around Europe and they do that to basically get you out of the conveyor belt of the very limited jobs in New Zealand and Australia and get you into either a final year of a school in Europe or get you into an apprenticeship with the company or if you're good enough into a company straight away. It's very, very, very clever. So I was lucky enough to get chosen to do that and had to do some serious fundraising to get myself onto that thing, which was a story for another day. Landing, I think, in Frankfurt in um, what we called stubbies in Australia. Um, stubbies? Yeah, short shorts, like real short uh. shorts, like obnoxiously short, <laughs> like kind of illegal short, I think. Um, so wearing short shorts and a, and, a, and a vest, landing in Frankfurt in the winter, we basically hopped in a bus and went from city to city to city to city auditioning. I think there was 22 different cities. And I had not really done geography. I didn't really know where we were going and, you know, what was what. And I just remember seeing all these big old buildings and just being blown away by it all and just going, oh my gosh, I'm in Europe. What? This is crazy. I ended up in Switzerland doing an audition and they offered me a job and the teacher that I had said, I'm going to come to your final interview there. And she came with me. She said, look, Corey wants to be a choreographer. So it was part of his contract. He needs to be able to choreograph something on the main stage once a year. But also Corey is poor, so he can't afford to fly back to Australia, do another six months at our school and then get another flight back here. So why don't you keep him now? His friends will pack up his room in Sydney and send it over to him. And they said yes. So I remember going to the hotel room 
everyone packed up their suitcases and hopped back in the tour bus and drove off. And I remember waving and I was just left in this, this hotel room. I remember going to <laughs> McDonald's, which was next door, and trying to order a cheeseburger and couldn't because I couldn't speak the language at that point. And crying. I went to the hotel and, and rang my mum and I said, Mum, I'm living here in Sweden now. And she was like, wow, you're living in Sweden. Okay. And so um, I, <laughs> I got my mum to tell my friends in Australia to pack up my stuff and send it to Sweden. And if you were paying attention earlier, you'll know that I was actually in Switzerland. And <laughs> for about two months, I thought I was living in Sweden. Oh my um, God. But actually I was living in Switzerland. If it makes you feel any better, in my year eight geography exam, I put the River Nile in England. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> I was absolutely convinced because I thought I saw a BBC programme where someone said, and we're here on the River Nile. <laughs> I didn't know where we were, but they, it obviously wasn't right. I wish the, the River, River Nile wasn't That would be amazing. Not the same. Maybe it is. Maybe the <laughs> Thames brilliant. is an extension of it. Who knows? I think so. At yeah. least that's what I believed for years. I think my geography teacher had an absolute... She loved marking my work. Anyway. One of my hardest words to say, there's like some words that my brain just can't do. And one of them is car park. My head says park And I always say it. And we decided to do a show in a car park. And... I would say, without fail, every single day, park arc. And people were like, what? <laughs> and I remember having to do the introduction to the show and it was so stressful because all my mind, like, it's just, I don't know why. It's just so interesting. It just it won't do it. I can do it now and I have to really think about it. But like, if I'm tired or if I, I'm like, oh, where's the park arc? I'll say, I'll, <laughs> it, will just, it will just come out. This is where uh, Steve Chapman, who was on our series One Podcast, says that sometimes these beautiful moments are when the world's flirting with us. And they make you smile. And they yeah. do make you smile. And that you should see, like, yeah, dyslexia is, as that. You know, it's, it's an opportunity to laugh or uh, smile, you know, at ourselves and have fun with it because yeah. it's there. <laughs> 100%. 100%. And I, but I remember being a child and those things happening to me more and more and being felt really stupid and really segregated for those mistakes by teachers that didn't, you know, I, you know, dare say weren't great teachers because they made me feel like crap, essentially. What I really remember as a child at school is being told off for my spelling and grammar, told off for my speech not being clear enough or, or articulate enough but being praised for anything that was sort of colorful or creative or being in the plays. And I wonder if, I, I wish I didn't feel such shame on the other side, but at the same time, I suspect that sort of approval and praising of, of, of the creative elements is the underpin for my life and career now. I remember the first day of stage school I think I shared this on Instagram recently, like the first day of stage school, my singing teacher said, if you're dyslexic, why are you here? You've got to pick things oh up. Oh my gosh. Yeah, right? Teacher, I hope you hear this and I hope you're ashamed of yourself for saying yeah, that. Damn right. But actually, everything that came after that was like this fire that I already had, but he kind of threw a few more logs of wood on it. Mm. And it was just like, when I have taken the time to think back on like the feeling that he left me with, 
it's kind of created so many great things. So I actually wrote him an email and thanked him for for saying that those things, because there was numerous things that he had said that had really hurt. But as I'm now older, I can look back on it and I see what he was doing. And I remember him saying to me once, your career is going to be so much harder than everyone in this class. And if you want it, you've got to work really hard and you've got to work 10 times harder than everyone else. And what he was doing was giving me every shit comment and Mm. pushing me so much harder that actually I was able to deal with those situations like a breeze afterwards. But it took me a really long time to understand that. So there's definitely a way to go about it. And I think that I'm a deep thinker, so I can I can take the time to think about that now. But there's a, a much better way that we could be teaching children and working with children with dyslexia. And I wondered what your thinking is around that. What do we need to change in the future? God help anyone if I was a teacher. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but I also appreciate that you found the positive opportunity in it. To answer your question, I would say, I think it needs to be celebrated in a way that's like your earlier comment, not going, if you are dyslexia, you're going to be a multimillionaire. Mm. Not in that kind of a way, but a celebration of the the freedom it gives you in a way and the association of that as opposed to the association of it with the struggle of spelling and and reading and, and, and retaining information and all of those beautiful things and park arc and... (laughs) <laughs> whatever else it, it is. I think podcasts like this and open, you know, I'm a 30 something year old man and I still don't feel fully comfortable talking about it. And I, I you know, doing the space podcast with you and doing this is a, is a, a thing for myself to be, okay, I'm going to proactively own this. It's a big part of my personality and life and I'm not going to be in the closet about it in a way. Um, so I think owning it, uh, as an individual, celebrating it where you can as teachers and and individuals and parents. And then, yeah, finding the individual positiveness that, that dyslexic you, yeah, can Yeah, and you. unique. Unique, What's yeah. unique to you. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned mm. that actually by doing these discussions, you're, it's like a, something for yourself mm. and things that your qualities that you're noticing within yourself, either associated with dyslexia or with your career. So could you describe one quality that got you to where you are today? What would that be? Oh, it's a good question. And I think probably tenacity. I've always called it like a persistent toddler. I'm, I'm, I'm like that. And some might say it, describe that as tenacity. I prefer persistent toddler because it's more in keeping way, with who I am. Way more visual. Yeah, 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 way more visual. And I, I just, um, I don't give up. And I don't, um, I don't see any other way other than the way that I want it to be. <laughs> and it, it just, I can't stop until it happens. And it's not a talent. It's not something I've worked at. It's just who I am as a person. You could probably call it stubborn as well, but it's not in a way that it's like, my idea is the best idea. Mm. It's I, how do we do this? It's the the problem solving. It's the the figuring figuring it out. I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia when I was younger and I only got, I, I, I had 
someone at school say that you've got dyslexia and ADHD, but unofficially. And then I, when I was in Switzerland, a parent of one of the teachers, who was, one of the kids was my friend, um, said, who was a, a, a dyslexia assessor, said, look, you've got dyslexia and I can treat you properly. And I said, great. And then we never did it. And I only got myself um, properly diagnosed by the BDA here in the UK about a year and a half ago. And so then went on that process of learning about it. And that's, that's very generous. I didn't learn anything from it, really. I read a little bit and then got bored, obviously. Uh, uh, but in doing that, it was the self-realization of the qualities that are associated with dyslexia as well and going far out. There's so many good ones. <laughs> There's so, so many good ones. And going, oh, yeah, I'm doing all this. That's how I operate. And going as an adult, I think, essentially as well, because you've defined yourself, you know yourself. I think mm -hmm. as a child, it might be quite confusing to associate those things and you don't know what real that means in the world. But as an adult, not having, having been told loosely, but never really wearing it, um, it was really quite interesting. It was like a psycho psychology assessment in a way. I think that's kind of leads us really nicely into you know, what advice would you give to any creative who are dancing with the label of dyslexia? I would say, um, what just came to my mind is just do it. <laughs> just do it and be you, babe. Um, like, do you. Do you. Do you know what I mean? Just do you unapologetically. Um, I would say that, you know, I think, I, I honestly don't know any or many dancers that don't have dyslexia. I think it's a really common trait. Mm -hmm. I think it's really helps in that space. Um, and I would say just do it and it, ask for support, ask for help when you're, I think there's a British culture thing in New Zealand. We ask everyone for everything all the time. We're like, hey, can you help me with this? Hey, can you help me with that? Which is probably part of that like persistent toddler thing that comes up. In Britain, I found that there's no, there's not, people are a little bit shy or coy about asking for help. And I remember coming here and going, I don't know how to do a tax return. I don't know how to write my CV. I don't know how to do all those kind of things. I, I, can someone check this email for me? I don't, I feel embarrassed sending this. I don't know. And I asked people for that. And I, I can see the struggle and the sort of like barrier for some dance artists getting to the next step or progressing their careers and actually even personal lives because they feel shy about asking, but they could really just do it for a little bit of help. And it's not even that much help. If anything, it's a bit of a confidence boost. And so there's support networks out there, whether it's your family or friends or someone random or us. us. Yeah, DM us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I feel like we're going to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not like DM, you know. DM you move beyond words. Yeah. That's why we're here. Exactly. Um, there is actually something I wanted to pick up on that that we chat about a little bit, which was um, relationship. You Ooh. mentioned that like you get someone to look over your email and that could oh, be I like a like parent. love relationship. Oh, but that is, is an interesting topic, but I feel like we'd be here oh, no, for sorry. another half an hour. Okay, bye. <laughs> uh, it was just quite interesting because like I think especially in lockdown, if someone was in the room and I, this kind of reminds me of school, how I, if I went and looked at someone's work and be like, oh, what? am I catching up on the right bit of text that we're supposed to be writing down from the whiteboard or something? They'd be like, don't copy me. And like, actually, I just wanted to keep on track with whatever was going on. And the same, I feel like I may not ask for help because of that experience. 
But we actually did talk about relationships and how like dyslexia may feed into that, whether it's like you're texting someone or you can't quite express the same feeling through words. And uh, this is slightly off topic away from your career. But any like any thoughts there? Oh, so many thoughts. Um, it's a great, great point. Um, it really is. I, I would say it really does affect relationships and I, I still don't fully appreciate it even to this day. I was very lucky early on that I got an incredible producer when I started being a choreographer. I'll start with the career part of that question. Um, I got a producer very early on who was able to help structure my work and, and teach me how to do Excels and budgets and Word documents and sort of be, we were sort of a partnership and we were able to do that in, in the way that how we were working with another company at that time. It really worked. I was very lucky. Then across the years, it's, you know, it's changed here and there. And I've largely always had someone, even if it's very, very part-time, to be around who role wouldn't be to check Corey's emails, but would check Corey's emails before they go out to, you know, the head of the BBC with like 5,000 spelling mistakes in it or whatever. Um, and now, I th- now I, I'm very lucky enough, touch wood, to have a team of people who do um, most of the comms and for me and I spend most of my time phoning people I, I try to do all my communication via phone calls because I'm a better uh, verbal communicator than I am a written communicator when I do have to do verbals I keep them very quick and uh, sorry when I have to do uh, emails and texts I keep them very short very sweet um, and if they're bigger and longer then I'll ask someone else to do them for me um, then in terms of relationships my goodness uh with friends or you know more than friends yeah it's really you know i i will flick off a text and this is again comes back to my adhd and dyslexia combination i think i'm 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 always doing about six things at once i find it very hard to just do one thing and so i'll i'll send a text and write be writing an email do a call all at the same time and i swear I've made complete sense and everything is perfect even in the rush sort of job and then like maybe the next day I'll go back and look at it <laughs> and it makes absolutely no sense and there's like and it just blows my mind and I swear it made perfect sense in the moment and I get people just text me back all the time going I'm sorry I don't understand what this means <laughs> and I'm like oh no 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 Corey it was, it was just it's so simple I, I, I had quite a significant relationship and I found my mental health towards the end of that relationship got really out of control because of my inability to uh, able to communicate. It was a long distance relationship as well. And so the communication was needed even more so in that way than anything else in a way. Like, you know, the text messages, the emails, all that kind of stuff. It was, it was actually built into the infrastructure of that relationship. And I felt overwhelmed um, with managing that. And I think that didn't help that relationship, actually. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky. I think you realize quickly the people that love you and the people that can understand you and the people that actually embrace it and find it quite entertaining. Um, and I have tricks that I try and do to myself to make sure it's better. And I know now, you know, if there's someone important, I stop myself, I take a deep breath in and out, I mm. stop what I'm doing and I focus on, on that person specifically and looking at that text. For someone who has only kind of recently worked out your triggers with dyslexia, how to navigate it, understand it, like you've done such an incredible job. And, you know, when we did have that webinar 
and we were hearing you speak so openly and just really quite bluntly about it and what needed to change. You were talking about pitches and, and you know, that they're not helpful um, and there needs to be different systems in place when you're applying for jobs. You know, it was all so relevant and I just really want to thank you for coming on the podcast and speaking with us. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for both having me. It's been a joy. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios London with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. Thank you.